But then there's also the thing of we're not allowed to be angry. Oh, yeah. So where does that anger go? I don't know. That's a rhetorical question, you know. (laughs) (laughs) In the bin. Answer me, Kieran. (laughs) Where does it go? (laughs) Yeah. Hello, and welcome back to Impolite Company. In this episode, we're going to be talking about mental health in the black community. We're going to ask the question, why do black men in the UK have higher rates of mental health issues than their white counterparts? We'll also talk about how racism could be playing a part in the developing mental health crisis in our community and access to support and help. It's a really interesting conversation that covers a lot from schooling to mistrust of medical institutions. Enjoy. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, how are Hi, you? Hi, Kieran. Hi, everyone. Yeah. Um, how are you? I'm good. It's been a it's been an interesting couple of months, which we'll talk about at some point. But um, I'm feeling much better. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah, we will talk about specifically why it's been a particularly weird and horrible few months. Mm. Um, and I suppose that leads, in a way. Yeah, <laughs> neatly into the topic that we're going to discuss today which is mental health and specifically mental health in the black community and mine and Kieran's kind of perspectives on that and also the kind of gendered differences in our experience yeah on that yeah I think just in general getting a little bit older you start to reflect on these things I'm like why do I react that way or or you or you think back to a time where you felt low I'm definitely more aware of when I'm feeling lower and the reason and trying to analyze the reasons why and a lot of that is from the past and experiences and it's an, again it's another thing that I, I have I have an exec coach who's amazing shout out to Robert <laughs> um who, he's amazing but it's another thing that we talk about right it's a part of everyone's identity and nobody has 100% perfect mental health it's not possible everyone goes through something at, at, at some point but there are specific challenges I think for for the black community um, there's specific types of challenges that are shared or if not more common yeah um, so yeah well there's the there are specific challenges that are the environmental factors in our lives impact our mental health. So, you know, there's a statistic I was reading earlier that I thought was interesting, which is boys from African and Caribbean communities in the UK have lower levels of mental health problems at age 11 Mm -hmm. compared to white or mixed heritage boys. However, national health data shows that African and Caribbean men in the UK are much more likely to develop some type of mental health problem during adulthood. So schizophrenia... Um, post-traumatic stress disorder and this doesn't occur in countries with a predominantly black population yeah so you you can't try and (laughs) genetics yeah yeah (laughs) so yeah i'm interested in your in your reaction to that stat it doesn't surprise me the realization for me was reading a carla's book he grew up in a very similar part of london than i did so he grew up in labrick grove and i was shepherd's bush um, and some of his experiences at school, it's really interesting. I've talked about it in the podcast before. Like, how does that shape what happens, especially in kind of adulthood? And I think for me, as soon as I hear things like that, even though we're not seeing those things develop um, until adulthood, I think a lot of it is rooted in maybe some of the things that have happened when black men were children so like for example you said when they're younger at school they they tend to not have was it not have mental health issues it was they have lower rates of of mental health issues in relation to the white population yeah and i wonder if part of that is that there isn't the structure and studies that are being done (laughs) are they cared about as much to really understand do do mental does mental health show up in the same way is it the same types of things? Are we just measuring for specific things? But also, black Caribbean and Pakistani boys are twice as likely to be excluded from school. Like, are they present for the studies? Because are there things that are happening which means they're not as present? Are they in detention? Could that be Sorry, uh, what, are you, what do you mean? Are you saying that they're not there to be surveyed? Yeah, or is it, or from a community perspective, 
what, like, how are they doing the survey? Like, is it because their families are taking them to the doctors and that's when it's being recorded? But if the families aren't taking you there, it's not being recorded. It's the same thing about around, like, the perception of intelligence as well. So one of the Small Axe episodes was about education, right? And one of the things that it talked about was um, when when young black boys are younger and then if, and if they're not stimulated, what tends to happen is because they're bored, because they're not stimulated by the class, they tend to be top of the class at the beginning of school and by the end of school, they're the bottom of the class. How the fuck does that happen? I think there's a series of things that happen leading up to adulthood. It might be within the education system, which is also the environment, but also cultural, cultural differences around mental health, which mean that you're more predisposed to potentially developing yeah i suppose when i read that stat my immediate assumption or kind of hypothesis was oh the world happens to you in that space of time yeah so when you're a child you're like any other child Mm. and the world happens to children quite quickly like children experience racism quite quickly for instance but the build-up the kind of collective build-up of societal issues and societal barriers and environmental issues and the experiences that young black boys go through when they reach teenage years and all you know all of that stuff hasn't happened yet yeah. when they're surveying 11 year olds but by the time you're an adult yeah. there is compounding issues of all of those things plus you know to your point maybe some cultural stigma yeah. around how you express your mental health how you seek help how you reach out to your community when you're struggling yeah when you're 11, you might not be able to articulate or fully understand what's happening. Mm-hmm. So I think it is happening when it when you're younger. And um, one of the episodes I talked about the teacher that kind of threw the book in, yeah, the my friend's face. At the time, I didn't really have the knowledge to understand and connect with dots of what was going on there. It's in hindsight that I'm like, oh my god, that was so messed up. I think at that age, if someone was to say like, is is racism playing out i wouldn't have been able to have identified it because i didn't have oh it's definitely yeah. playing out yeah. it's just a question of when you're a 40 year old man you've been experiencing racism for 40 years yeah, yeah. you know yeah. when you're a seven-year-old yeah. kid you've been experiencing yeah. it for comparatively less time and yeah. you have less understanding of it to be able to articulate what it yeah. is and what those things mean. Yeah. yeah, there's an ignorance to it, isn't there? It's not compounded yet. You're not understanding how all those dots connect. It's not, you've only got a couple of paper cuts, not the thousand that you might get to. When I was growing up as well, this was like, what, early 90s? I think there was such a focus because of what my parents and grandparents had been through to just do well and not cause a scene or not cause too much trouble. There was almost that like, just keep going. It's going to be hard. And I think I think a lot of people's parents had that conversation with them and said, it's going to be really fucking hard. And I was okay with that. It was just like, it's an, it was just, an, everyone had that conversation. Um, but I think what happens is when, I think what also happens is when you, when you, when you get into adulthood, it's only words really until you get into the real world and you're like, oh, this is really hard. Like I can, I can study and still be the top of the class. I can go to uni and get a first and work really hard and figure out how that all works. But when you go into the real world, it's slightly different. That's true, but it's also your perspective as somebody who's quite academic. I think there's a lot of black boys and black girls, well, there's a lot of black children that, what if you're not academic? What if you can't just shut up and apply yourself and get good grades and then kind of at least get your head down and kind of get out of there? That's, I think, when you get into being labelled as disruptive, ending up on a suspension, ending up on expulsion. And you know, we all know about the kind of expulsion to Mm. pupil referral unit to prison in a pipeline. So I'm interested in how those things as well, those kinds of experiences must have such an impact on mental health, on self-worth, on how people view themselves and how people think about their own ambitions and all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And especially if that's already starting to play out, if you aren't academic and I wasn't massively academic, like I, I would, was very much like middle of the class. Like I wasn't 
anything I wouldn't tell her was anything special and that I'm saying that completely objectively like it wasn't really until secondary school and that was more because of proximity to it was a very mixed school that had different classes there was a lot of things that happened I think that allowed me to that helped me kind of explore my potential but I did also I, th I think you're right in terms of you know if that started playing out from a, from primary school and it doesn't get better in secondary school and it's just compounding and compounding and compounding, you come out of school, you may have the qualifications or you may not have the qualifications, but you go into the world, the shock of that and then the expectations. I think there's, an, there's, another, there's another angle as well. It's like when you don't see people that look like you in certain places, like this, you could, I, it could feel very isolating. Mm -hmm. If you're like, shit, I haven't got the grades and also when I'm looking at people that are in the field that I want to work in, and they also don't look at me. It's like, well, the world's against me. Like, what are the chances? Yeah, yeah. And I and I've I've spoken to, you know. I've spoken to to friends that, and and it's, it's a class thing as well. But I've spoken to friends as well that have been had a completely different mindset and been like, well, I could never do that. I'm like, you're literally one of the most intelligent people I know, emotionally and like <laughs> like academically. And it's something that's just impacted their, the, the, how they feel about themselves and how they show up in the world. Yeah, it's part of who we can imagine ourselves as. You've got to have a lot of imagination <clears throat> and a lot of determination and a lot of resilience to yeah. be able to say, even though I have grown up in a certain part of town, even though I have nobody around me who's in the kind of job I might want to do, even though when I look at those jobs, nobody in those jobs looks like me, even though all my teachers yeah. dislike me, yeah. I'm still gonna somehow find a yeah. way to to do that. Yeah. And I think we're conned into thinking that's even possible because you have those kinds of, you know, in popular culture, you have those yeah. kinds of determination above all else, yeah, kinds of individualistic stories, you know. version of reality. You have like pursuit of happiness kind of yeah. uh, stories of like this one guy's determination yeah. to become a Wall Street stockbroker against all odds. You know, it's like the Oprah thing. Like if Oprah can do it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so can you. Like... And so you have these kind of model minority myth type representations that make you think it must be a me problem if I can't, yeah. if these systems working against me succeed in in holding me back the probability of, of getting to that, and if that story is being painted as though it's really easy, <laughs> the fall from grace is insane. But how do you re rebuild from, from that? Yeah, and there's racism also tied up in the, the zones in which black people are, are able to achieve excellence. It's like, yeah. it's like running and singing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It'd be good also to talk to you about, because you have these higher prevalence of mental health issues in people of Caribbean and African yeah. descent. You That's also true in the US. You know, African-Americans are 20% more likely to experience serious psychological distress and major depressive disorders than, than white Americans. But then you also have the the institutional situation and issue in which there's a kind of deep distrust in my experience of kind of medical institutions in the black community yeah. and authority in general right authority in general uh and and institutions in general yeah and certainly medical institutions you know i've had long conversations with my grandma about vaccinations yeah. and yeah. i coached a woman for a while a black woman who we did a lot of kind of deep personal work yeah. and I had to be really boundaried about making sure it didn't step into a therapeutic zone yeah. in which I wasn't qualified to to guide her. And so we had a lot of conversations about initiating therapy and her resistance was so strong. And when we unpacked a lot of that resistance, it was around being pathologized. It was around quite extreme like fears of if I open up to this person are they going to section me what right would they have to you know there was a real deep yeah. kind of fear around discussing mental health 
with any form of medical professional, with any form of kind of medical institution. And it took a really long time of kind of continual talking about it to get her to even explore it, to even kind of take the first steps in it. Yeah. How much of that is through like generational trauma because of past events? Like in terms of like the it being passed down that you don't trust because of certain events that have I can't remember what the study was in the US had a massive knock on effect um for African Americans and their trust. Are you talking about the syphilis study? Yes. Where they just let guys get syphilis. Yeah. And like watched it play out over yeah. the course of multiple yeah. decades while they just and, went blind. Yeah. And it was like an experiment and they weren't yeah. told. And the reward reward was that they got healthcare, right? <laughs> And all they thought they were signing up was to do a safe experiment and they would get medical insurance as a reward yeah, for that. Yeah. Not that they would like, that they knew that. And, and that, they and knew they had syphilis and they were yeah. learning the syphilis ravaged their bodies. And, you know, the yeah. cure for syphilis is like penicillin. It's like really yeah. easy to cure. Yeah. But yes, and that was that was the US government. Yeah. So I wonder you know, what I think, the, part, I think it was the CDC that was yeah. t carrying that out. I wonder what part of... Um, and then there's like a massive whistleblower that blew it all up. But they've apologized, yeah. so <laughs> we just all shut up about it now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, I, but I just wonder what you think about how much that plays a part in. Even I think I'm I'm not sure whether people can articulate why they don't trust. Like like for example, in America, they don't trust the medical system. They know why, or they just, or have they inherited things? Have they had personal experiences, and then it's compounded by the things that they've inherited? Or it... I think it's I think it's and both. The history of so much medical stuff, like that study, is a great example. Mm. You know, gynecology. Do you know the origin of gynecology is that they would operate on enslaved black women without anesthesia. That's that's the origin of gynecology, right? Of just like like poking around and experimenting with that's with nice. enslaved black women's vaginas, basically. So that's deep generational trauma. Yeah. And you know, we know from things like epigenetics that we hold that trauma yeah. you know, in our bodies. Yeah. And then on top of that, I think we've got very present current reasons not to not to yeah. trust i was looking into some of this and um i was reading something from 2021 that said black people are more likely are more than four times more likely to be the subject of restrictive interventions so being restrained being sectioned being held in isolation yeah. and so that those are kind of real world present day yeah. Examples. And even the language is used language used is different, right? My so my sister worked with has worked with lots of young she was a caseworker and that was one of the things that was a massive surprise to her and she saw it playing out, right? Like when there was a black young man having a mental break, they were dealt with very differently and terms used were very different. Yes. Yeah. To describe exactly the same behaviours. Yeah. And so I think there is a real fear of a real kind of present fear and a real present danger yeah. that once you start interacting with institutions, there's no way out. That, that applies to medical institutions. I think that applies to like the prison system that applies to mm. so many like institutions in society. I think yeah. black people feel as though once I interact with that thing, I'm in the cycle of, yeah. of interacting with it. And it's very hard to, to break away from it so i'm not gonna even remotely go there and i would there's that whole thing of like black people don't call the police yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right yeah. I, you'd never call the police on a black person right. like like yeah. like pretty much ever yeah. and i think a similar thing i i've i've seen and experienced some quite extreme mental health breaks yeah. with people and i would never like un unless there was such a real and present danger yeah that they were going to harm themselves or harm other people, all of my instincts would be that I wouldn't call and try and get them sectioned or get that, you yeah. know, I just, it would just go against all my instincts. Yeah, you could make it worse. Yeah. <clears throat> but know, in, a, in a way that, that the same kind of thing wouldn't run through my mind if they were white, I don't yeah. think. I would inherently trust the institutions you know more I, from, the, from the lens of yeah. that being a white person. 
I've never thought about that scenario as you're saying it. I'm like, it makes sense what you're saying. If one of my black friends had a mental health break, what would I do? You I might call, you might call one one one. You might you know you yeah. you might engage in those yeah. well, those services, <laughs> yeah. but the, but yeah. that kind of that there is that reticence. Yeah. To be like, what's going to happen? Yeah. If they have to be restrained in some way. Yeah. You know, so so I I do think that's a real and kind of present fear. Yeah. I guess my question as well to you would be, I'm saying this as a black man. I think there's an element also of like, you know, when we talk about masculinity for black men, I think it's you're expected even more so to be a man, a man's man. Mm. It's not our feelings. Some of that is bullshit from history, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> you know, stripping you of any um, emotion and personality and. And the black man is 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 fetishized in a kind of hyper masculine way, yeah, yeah. you know, on the scale of masculinity. Yeah. The kind of trope, in a way, is that the hyper masculine end of that spectrum yeah. is a black man. Yeah. So it's almost like, well, I don't know if that's been your experience, but it feels to me as though it's like multiplied the kind yeah. of the the expectations that fall on men in terms of mental health, in terms of being strong, in terms of not kind of showing emotion are amplified yeah i think when i was younger i definitely was more disconnected with my emotions i think my friends would even say now that i'm the most stable one but that's just external that's what people's perceptions of me are when i say stable as in like the way that i feel things and we've talked about this before about i'm a very emo um empathic person mm-hmm. i do feel things really quite heavily mm-hmm. um but i've learned how to just I think, and not like I've tried to learn it, it's just an expectation that, you know, I used to cry a lot as a child, I don't cry as much now, I probably cry more now that I'm getting older, but there was a period where I was, I think I was just quite stoic about everything. Like I, like I didn't... And, and, and to think, what extent do you feel that you had to be? I, felt, I definitely think, looking back, it was just an expectation. People would see you come into a room and they would expect you to be a t- certain way. And I've had people say that to me once they've got to know me and I felt comfortable with them. They're like, you're completely different to what I expected. Oh, I've got that. Yeah. I've got that old chestnut. Yeah. And I think that's all to do with that, right? They're, that's their stereotyping expectations of you. They see, I thought you were going to be like really strict. Why? Yeah. I thought you were scary before I really yeah, got I to you, know you. Like, that's, that's actually I've had that one at work multiple times. Yeah. You're actually really nice. Like, Thanks. You be, you're a bitch. <laughs> You've actually turned and, out to be horrible. <laughs> and it's like it's both. It's both true that they're stereotyping, and it's also true that I think I have had to embody a scariness at work, scariness quote unquote, yeah. at work in order to get by. Yeah. You know, it's it. There's also a a softness that I. I'm not as able to display. There's also a kind of yeah. tough exterior that I've had to, as an as a for instance, when you're a woman of color who yeah. is managing a team which <clears throat> consists of some young misogynistic racist men. Yeah, you have to learn where to find your tough yeah. side. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and that's true of of lots of managers, but it's a kind of especially true. And it's especially true that you're going to be undermined. And it's especially true that people are going to try and walk all over you and they're going to try and push the boundaries and they're going to try and steal your work. And so you do start to build up these layers of hardness, hardness stoicism. Yeah. And so then it's like you get to that point and then people go, oh, you're scary. And you're like, I've kind of had to be pretty fucking yeah. ferocious yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I've had to be. Yeah. You know, I'm not able to be my fully authentic self. And then there was one guy who is a really quite senior guy who joined. We used to do 360 feedback in our reviews. And he said something like that. I, he said something like I was really hard to read or something. He said something really vague and not helpful. Mm. And it was like, you're really hard to read. And, and I feel like you're not always just saying what you think about things. You're kind of calculating what to say. It was something weird like that. So, and you're, I was like, like, so, so you're basically like calculating and you're... I can't trust you. Yeah. And I was like, I can't just be like, in head comes out of mouth like you can. (laughs) That's not how it works for me, I'm afraid. I can't just say whatever I think that comes out of like, comes to the top of my, I mean, I do sometimes, but it it still goes through a process. So there's almost this kind of cyclical compounding thing, which is people expect you to be a certain way. 
you then end up being more that way because you have to be or you have to get by, which kind of furthers that yeah. perception of you. I got bullied for not being black enough. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what is black? Black isn't a certain way, but it was stereotyped to be a certain way. But so- we oppress ourselves in those ways because we get put in boxes and then we we're like that's the only box you know how many how many black kids feel comfortable being into like rock or being emo or being kind of geeky or being you know it's like there's and it feels like some kind of betrayal to be anything but what is seen as black it it it, i can see how it could almost be seen as a bit of a of a betrayal that you're into types of music that white people like as well Mm. and so in some ways maybe it could be said that you're trying to assimilate mm. with with white people not and so you don't have the luxury yeah. of just liking what you like no. there's always kind of some ki- there's then, always some kind of and there may have meaning. been a level of assimilation as well like yeah. we're kids right like there may people are trying to figure out who they are you're assimilating maybe to the version of blackness that you're supposed to be that may not be how you're you've been brought up oh yeah of course you know what i mean and I, and I think that's what's really interesting is like in that environment we're all playing to the rules that have been created for us rather than like the reality. And I just think, so if we go back to like what we're talking about around, around like black men's health, you know, we can speak and kind of look at it and talk about it. And I think probably even at the time when we were when we were, were younger, we were assessing what was going on. We were taking it in and looking at it in some way. Or if you don't have the ability to do that, I think I had a lot of support from around me, for not only from my friends, but um, my parents. If you don't have any guidance, you're just left to deal with that. It's really complicated. Like even I was thinking about something the other day. And I was like, "No, I, I'm just going to do it and see what happens." And and it was fine. But it was and it was what was expected. But there was still a felt really scary to do it. Mm. I've got something in me, but I think when I was younger, it, it was much scarier. And I think if you don't, if you aren't able to overcome that, or you have the don't have the tools, or you're not in the environment that's going to allow you to feel safe to make mistakes, for example. I think there's definitely a an internalized unable to make mistakes yeah. thing, certainly in the Caribbean community. I think failure feels like not an option. Yeah. And and to the extent that mental health is involved, I think there is a stigma. This is this is broadly the case in general as you know, this is the case outside of the yeah. black community as well, but there's definitely a heavy stigma of of having mental health issues or or dips is is potentially seen as a failure. Yeah, it's pride. We deal with it internally or with a small group. We don't show any sign of weakness. Like I know there's probably things that my granddad should have got professional help with, but it was kept. You know, they were already dealing with enough being you know a mixed family. Let's not acknowledge there's other problems, even though we know there is. It wasn't a done thing, right? It wasn't a. There was no one coming to your family going, you know, this is a problem in the community. Um, someone from your community. Well, that's another. Yeah. That's another kind of question because yeah. I think if with with the mistrust of institutions that are that have systemic racism in within them, you then think, well, you know, what community based interventions are there, and and would there be more? Perhaps if I sometimes wonder, would my grandma have been more upheld and kind of lifted up by the community had she yeah. been in Jamaica than yeah. in Leeds yeah. in, you know, in the 60s, mm. raising three kids? What was the support system like there? And how did that impact her big, mental health? Big Caribbean community in Leeds, right? It was sort of one of those cities that Windrush people, Windrush generation was, people went factories, to. Wherever there was factories. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, there, yeah. There, but not not necessarily as, as much as like London or yeah. Birmingham, I don't think. Yeah. And I think and community is a big thing, isn't it? A big, it's, it's, a, it's a big thing. Like when in London, uh, there was obviously more of a community in London. Um, there's a really, I've talked about this as well before, there was a really big community centre that my mum worked in. I think that created an environment where you you did have that community. All those things are gone now. like And even things like play centres from when I was younger, in London, they're gone. Mm-hmm. And they there were a lot of young boys of colour that went to those things and got to experience things that they wouldn't have experienced at school or at home. They got to see... I remember one of the a lot of the play workers would be quite diverse and you got to see people in authority. 
Like I remember the the woman that was at my play center that I went to. She was like a headmistress, but for the play center. That's the way I saw it as a child. I was like, I'd never seen. I think she was mixed race. I'm not sure, but I'd just never seen a black woman in authority like that. Mm-hmm. At that age, it was like a a thing that mm-hmm. I got to see. I didn't see that in school. I don't think I had any black teachers at school, and that's in the middle of London zone too. Uh, so so like, but those things are gone. The government mm. over the last 12 years have like genuinely just devastated those things. And kind of when you think about what environment that creates, especially for people like my mum, who was a single, who was essentially a single mother when I was a lot younger, she was able to work and continue supporting the family and pursuing a career that we all benefited from because she had childcare in these subsidised play centres that would look after me and give me access to lots of different things but it means i wasn't on the streets yeah doing all sorts which i would have de- i probably would have been if we didn't have that or i would have been, i don't know maybe there, i probably would have been in a you know a childminder or whatever but at the same time all of that was subsidized it's not really now so you can imagine what those young what happens to young boys that don't have that support in those hours especially if they come from a single ha- parent household all that stuff over time like you said it's compounding what are they also experiencing what are they going out and doing I think I played that a couple of times and there, every time there was a fuckery. Every single time. Mm. And my mum was like, you're not going out anymore. Mm. And I'm not a troublemaker, but I got myself into trouble just by going out, just playing out. <laughs> yeah. You don't can't, pay, you can't play, blame it on the parents. No, there's a, there's a very specific socioeconomic reason why yeah. that's happening. Yeah. And, and these are like political decisions often. You strip these things away... Yeah. So that people don't have outlets and so that the class divide gets worse, right? Because you have less working class kids going into the arts. You have less working class kids with avenues for their skills and their passions and and all that kind of stuff. And then you get get people being criminalized and then it feeds that narrative that black people, working class people, and there's a lot of crossover on that Venn diagram, right? are inherently criminal in some way. Yeah. And it's like, no, there's a direct line between the services and access to services. I've yes. and... seen knife crime rise as subsidised services were starting to be taken out. There's a direct correlation to knife crime going up. Mm-hmm. But it's, but I think people know that and I think that it's a, it's a political... Sorry, when, when I say people, I mean... You know, Politicians Margaret know that. Thatcher. Politicians <laughs> that. but, yeah, they know that, yeah. but they want to make their culture war case, yeah. Yeah. and it's easy to make the culture war case if you can, if you can demonize, if you can criminalize, if you can, you know, yeah, do all of that stuff. It'd be good also to talk about your view on to what extent can we view mental health on a on an individual level? Yeah, so individual people trying to grapple with their mental health and accessing services or not accessing services or or getting help or whatever that's one part of the question i think and 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 why different people from different communities find that so much harder and then there's the question i think of can you even discuss mental health on that kind of individual level when we know that we're so impacted by the kind of societal by the by the systemic so i was there's some there's some research also on on black people experiencing racism and and experiencing trauma even secondhand. So mm. by that I mean by seeing it on social media. Yeah. That leads to PTSD like mm. symptoms. So, you know, in the context of the last well, the last decade really, but the last three years or so in particular the amount of murder and violence enacted on black bodies that we have seen, mm. like physically seen, like comes up yeah. without warning on your social media. You can watch a black guy die mm. in the street, right? Yeah. Like, what does that do? And how does that add to what we're talking about? And to what extent can we even get help on an individual level when those things are still there yeah so i'm trying not to get too emotional yeah what well you don't have to i think blm was a big for me there was a massive wall that i hit Mm. um when you're 
not only are you unpacking a lot of stuff when you're seeing things like that. I remember there was a point where I was like, it's too much. Yeah. It's too much. It is too much. I, I've not actually... I mean, some is unavoidable. Yeah. I've not... I've deliberately not watched those videos, any any yeah. of those videos. Yeah, yeah. I've not watched Eric Garner. I've not watched George Floyd. I've not watched yeah. any of those videos. I've only watched the George Floyd one and I was like... I, ca I can't. I didn't... I don't... I didn't know what I... I think... And I think that's part of the thing, right? It hit me like a ton of bricks because when you see it playing out you're like this is so fundamentally fucked up it's hard to articulate the feelings that you feel in that like that it could be if you were in the wrong place in the wrong time and people say well you know you're not in america or you're not whatever it's like it doesn't matter if I go and visit America, like it, there is a, pro we, there, we are close, pro we have close proximity to that. We happening. won't go on family holidays to America now. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, while, uh, did I go while Trump? No. I just, I'm not. Post 2016. Yeah. yeah. We had an, a holiday already um, booked from, um, we were meant to go the year that the pandemic hit. So we went on that holiday, but I, I'll, I think I might have to go for work now and then, but I, it, I, I hated the way it felt there. I went to Florida and I could feel it was completely different to the last time I've been there. Like the country yeah. is divided. We spoke to our friend. We've got family friends there. They said the same thing. But I think going back to your question about, and I got a little bit emotional there, but I think going back to your question is, is that definitely plays a part. And if you don't have the resilience and you don't have the, the well, it breaks down your resilience. It chips away at it. Well, do you even think there's some... Well, I, I almost even think that it cuts through the resilience question in a way yeah. of like, this is hard to articulate and I don't know whether or not the white listeners that we've got will relate to this or not. Perhaps if they're Jewish, you know, when I've spoken yeah. to Jewish friends who are descended from Holocaust survivors and, yeah. and that kind of thing there's a that's that's the that's the one of the only times i've experienced the kind of the empathy the mm. the level of kind of sharing of when i see something when i see someone from my community being hurt it yeah. feels like a punch in the gut yeah. in a in a it's like that seeing human beings in pain but there's yeah. something quite specific yeah. about seeing a racist, a violent racist attack on somebody who looks like you, who could be you, who could yeah. be your brother, who could yeah. be combined with that kind of epigenetic thing that we talked about of yeah. like the trauma we're just holding. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like it kind of twists something inside you that is almost hard to articulate, that yeah. is generational, that isn't just about this life. It's about the lives before. Yeah. It's about it engages something on an emotional level that I think probably goes back to the past 250 years. Yeah, yeah. Like I know, and you know, yeah. that the fact that we're, our origins are Caribbean means we're descended from enslaved people, full stop. Yeah. We're not we're not indigenous to yeah. that, that part of the yeah. world. Yeah. And that means we know whether we've done our ancestry or not, that yeah. there is so much deep pain in yeah. our lineage well, when you just think sorry to interrupt but even when you just think about when you look at our genetics of the reason why you can tell someone's from the caribbean rather than from the african continent continent is because we have european genes because rape was rife for hundreds of years probably every black female slave may have been raped at some point like that is deep just that alone Mm -hmm. is very is deep 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 trauma that will continue for i don't know how long <laughs> like that's just one thing right <laughs> when you think about that being so widespread and that showing up in our genetics as well mm -hmm. we have we will carry mm -hmm. a lot of that trauma yes and then you know i think there's an interesting thing as well about or question about the second hand experience of of witnessing violence yeah. not only what it does to us but also the the kind of almost voyeurism of it yeah. you know 
someone in something I read made a really good point of when there's a so there have been there have been shootings for instance in America in which white people have been have been killed that have been on video but you basically don't see the video and so there's a respect that is a risk for want of a better word there's a respect that is given to white victims which is we yeah. don't watch that yeah we don't uh disseminate that yeah we don't because because you don't want to see your aunt being gunned down yeah on the tv or like as you're scrolling through your instagram yeah. and there's something about the disrespect even in death to black people that way like you're used to seeing it mm. that like it's kind of normal to see it mm. like when i see a um you know, uh, a photo of a black guy with, sh you know, his shoulders in looking at the camera, you know, like a school picture or a graduating picture. I immediately, if that comes up on the news, I think he's died. That's, that's my immediate wow. response is to go, yeah. is to scan the article and see yeah. if we're taught, if this is about somebody being killed. Like, that's so instinctive yeah. in my response. I worry about how much of that is consumed and 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 I get the awareness yeah. thing. I get that like when Philando Castile was killed it was live streamed and his yeah. girlfriend was live streaming it because she because there's a there's a thing that happens now of like the truth the police won't tell the truth and the body cam footage won't yeah. be on and yeah. there's there's a real the power in 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 that footage and at the same time what it does to us to see it. Yeah. Do you think we know the damage it's doing? Like, do, like, no, I don't think we do. Like, I think sometimes things like that, like today, catch me by surprise. If I see a picture of Trayvon Martin, I immediately cry. Oh, wow. That has always that's been the case since yeah. he was killed. I think nine years ago now, nearly a decade ago. Yeah. If I see a picture of that boy, I cry. If it comes up that it's the anniversary, or it's his birthday, or something comes up on social media, it doesn't yeah. even have to be an image that is, yeah. in and of itself, a trigger yeah. warning type of image. Mm. It sets me off. I get more angry about Stephen Lawrence. Anger just come. I just get angry. Well, yeah. And that's again, that's another emotion tied to that trauma of like. But then there's also the thing of we're not allowed to be angry. Oh, yeah. So where does that anger go? I don't know. That's a rhetorical question. You know? <laughs> <laughs> In the bin. Answer me, Kieran. <laughs> yeah. Where does it go? <laughs> yeah. How is it being, how does it get dealt with? I do think, so for me, for example, when we talked about the end of the last season, talked about, you know, doing the podcast being very cathartic. This is one way of releasing that, I think, for mm. me. But I don't know if that's a. I don't know if, as a community or a, 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 of people, we invest enough in doing things that help release some of the bullshit that we. Well, um, do you think that that's why? I was thinking as I was doing the research for this episode about that play that we went to see. Yeah. So the play is called For Black Boys Who Have Considered Suicide When the Hue Gets Too Heavy. And Kieran and I went to this theatre show. It did a limited run. Better be coming back. I want to say again. In the past kind of six months or so. And mind. a group of us went. And it was the most remarkable play I've ever seen, I, so. I think. And I, uh, quite a few people, we were a group of about 10 of us went, and quite a few people were kind of... You know when you watch a film and and you kind of can't review it afterwards because nobody has anything to say. Yeah, everyone's kind of still we kind of like, stunned. We were all like, "Bye." <laughs> <We're not laughs> uh, yeah. What did you think of that? Um, and uh, my friend Andrea, who is famously unimpressed by things, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> was clearly so moved. It is a black guy as well. Um, is a black gay man and there's a there's there's some intersectional exploration yeah. of, of both of those things in the in the play was like he said something to me like I've never I've never seen something that I've related to yeah it was mad. more and part of the reason I'm bringing it up that the kind of basic premise of the show or the basic um structure 
see of the scene is that you have a group of of young black men in a kind of group therapy context talking about their individual experiences of being black and they've got quite different experiences and they're explored in different ways and there's a kind of group dynamic and it's it's hard to explain play but part of what i thought was remarkable about it was seeing that kind of raw empathy and that complexity of portrayal of black men in that kind of context especially in the theater yeah you know in the west end do you know what i also thought was like quite profound was was the understanding and discourse that happened between a group of very different young black men mm-hmm. how they supported each other but also for me the most surprising thing was i've never heard a lot of those stories spoken out loud yes. coming out of a black man's mouth yes i'd never associated those experiences apart from the ones i could relate to which i related to a lot of them but i'd never heard it spoken out loud in an open environment you just don't see black men with that vulnerability with and that complexity vulnerability it's and like support with each other it's like how um i don't know if you've ever seen moonlight no i haven't seen that yet why have i not seen <laughs> another that yet? film that andrea didn't like oh really <laughs> um why didn't you like it andrea this is a question for you <laughs> direct question you can send a message in, in Spotify app. he's gonna listen to this episode and be like what the fuck ella <laughs> Um, we can call it why didn't you like it uh, (laughs) (laughs) we should get him on for a pop culture episode I'd love that Um, he works in the arts and he has very good taste Um, but one of the things about Moonlight which isn't a spoiler is about a black boy and his it's like a coming of age story Uh, he's about a a gay um, black boy and there's a scene in which he kisses another man Mm. another black man and I went to see it at the cinema and I remember saying to my partner at the time, I've never seen that before. Yeah. I, and I hadn't realized I hadn't seen it until I saw it. And then I was like, whoa, well, yeah. I have never seen that before. I'd watched Queer as Folk with my mum. And I'd had a gay education. Yeah. But I was like, why have I never seen this before? Yeah. Why is it feel? And he was quite yeah. one of the characters were quite hyper masculine. Yeah. And I was like, I have never seen two men like this kiss, yeah. who are black, who are like, and you know, I think that film came out about seven years ago now. Yeah. It's nuts that yeah. we don't have these cultural touch yeah. points that explore that kind of complexity. Yeah, it's the same with, and not the same level of complexity, but it's the same with. I remember having that feeling when I watched Dreamgirls, the musical. Oh, yeah. And that sounds like really like now. But think about that was a huge film with a predom- with a fully black cast that did. I think it was the highest grossing film. You're forgetting The Wiz. The, oh, <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> 1970s trailblazing yeah. The Wiz. <laughs> I, I just remember the scene with and the the. The interaction between Effie and um, I can't remember the name of the, of the Beyonce Jamie Fox, Jamie Oh no, Fox. sorry, yeah. The love there and the, the like the the betrayal, but then also the fact like just all these things that are not I'd not seen like seen on the big screen. Mm-hmm. But the same, I felt exactly the same with like when Black Panther was introduced into the cinematic universe, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, when he was in uh, Civil War. And it was when he first came up, when he took the mask off, even though I knew he was black, when he took that mask off, I got goosebumps. Because I'd never seen... A black superhero. A black superhero, apart from Storm, which they massively watered down. They messed that character up in the original X. Yeah. And they made her a plot device, and she pushed in the last ones to have more lines and be more, like, substantial. I also thought Storm was darker in the comics. Yeah, she was. I'm um, not a comic book nerd, so she correct was, me. She was darker. But she, was, she was she was darker skinned, yeah. and like I love Halle Berry, but yeah, she was. She's a palatable black woman. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Especially at the time, she was the palatable black woman of choice for superhero movies. Remember, she was um, the Catwoman. She was a Bond girl. Bond girl. Yeah. You know, yeah, she had yeah. the crossover she appeal. Had the crossover. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but when he took them, I remember that, and it's not as deep. As you know, seeing two met two black men kissing on screen for the first time, but someone that is really into who has been in an environment that is just predominantly white men 
as superheroes, suddenly mm-hmm. having this black superhero that came in and like essentially fucked things up for the right reasons in terms of not in a way just like did or it was just violence, but he was articulate. He was a king. He was actually a prince when he first came into it. Like it had a massive impact. It was like, what yeah. am I? What, I knew he was going to be in the film, but it's still when you see it, it gives. There's that. Why? But why? Why is the other thing? It's like, you know, why does it have that impact? Why? Why is it like that? And we know why, but I think you know what I mean. It well because it's so scarce. And also, I think you don't realize you don't you don't realize you're living in a desert until you get a drop of water, and you're like, ah. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, Black Panther as a as a as a as a character, like as a superhero, is not perfect. The messaging isn't great. No, but that's but another thing that you want more representation of, like yeah. imperfect imperfect characters yeah. and yeah. human characters, and yeah. you know, all of that kind of stuff. I think yeah. that that we, we've spoken about representation before, but. Yeah that ex- you don't realise how much that lack of exploration of those different kind of complexities impact your own personal, how you self-identify and how you think about yourself yeah. and how you and engage ma- with, with your own mental health. And exactly. And it makes you think about that, right? It makes you go away and go, why did I react that way? Oh, yeah. I, I think we, we have so much ingrained hypervigilance about about so much, which is you know, generationally has served a purpose. It's kept us safe, you know, in an environment where you can get lynched for walking on the wrong side of the street. Hypervigilance is a, is a survival mechanism. But now you have this, you know, have this like legacy of hypervigilance. And and I think we're learning to try and shed some of those things. And yet you still have society pushing back and you have government pushing back and you have, ingrained systemic racism in systems you know we've not even spoken about things like the black you know maternity mortality rates and you know black women's pain not being taken seriously you know all of those things and so it's really hard to then on an individual level do the work to try and overcome those things yeah it's so true hopefully we've talked about you know a lot of the things that we we can we can talk about from not only studies but also from our own experiences of why that could be and mm-hmm. why that why it's why it, it isn't easy to be successful or to overcome some of those things because there's things that are, that are out of your control there's things that yes. are and and I almost reject the concept of individuals overcoming yeah these you know societal issues it's the kind of it's like the issues need to be addressed at the societal level yeah. not at the individual level and also being black you are not allowed to make as many mistakes yeah so actually the 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 the, the stakes are higher right like you make one mistake I, I can't remember what i was what i think it was about english black comedians it was with richard blackwood and a few other um black community comedians and they were saying you know, you get a special. You make you, and this was like in the nineties. You make one, it, you make one mistake, you're out. If you were a white male comedian, you could have yeah. three or four flops. And yeah, you'd still yeah, be. yeah, yeah. So the stakes are higher. We want to be perfect. Yeah, it's not just that we have a fear of failure. It's that the world doesn't allow us to fail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As as is often the case, we probably feel like we have more to talk about. Yeah. But, um. I really enjoyed that conversation. I think it meandered in lots of interesting directions. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.